Creative Babble. What's your full name? George Smith. Wayne Smith. I'm tape recording this conversation. You aware of that? Okay, he nodded his head. This is the voice of San Bernardino County homicide detective, Ross Dvorak. George, do you realize that you have a bullet in your back? There's a possibility that you may die. Do you realize that? With that in mind, do you want to tell me anything about what happened? I'll talk to you, we'll talk. Detective Dvorak? is standing over a wounded George Smith on the side of a remote hillside in Coldwater Canyon, 70 miles east of Los Angeles. The injured man was covered in snow and shivering. He was pretty much bleeding to death. The two SWAT officers picked up George Smith and carefully walked him down the canyon. He couldn't take a few steps without stopping to rest. This guy was fading fast. They weren't sure he was going to make it down the canyon alive. Still, George Smith demanded medical attention. We're going to do what we can, George, but the helicopter can't land here, and we've got quite a ways to walk before we can get you to where you're going to be picked up. How much longer? Probably about a five-minute hike down the hill. It wasn't going to be easy getting off this mountainside. It took Detective Dvorak 45 minutes to walk through the thick brush just to get to George Smith. What happened, George? George Smith wasn't some injured hiker during a weekend camping trip. He was running from police as part of a manhunt that's been going on for two days now. It seems like Detective Dvorak's strategy was to get George Smith to confess before dying on the side of this mountain. I got three in my leg. Where did you get the three rounds in your leg? At the bank. The bank of Norco? George Smith and the four others have been on the run since the previous day when they robbed the bank in Norco, California. That's when George Smith was shot in the thigh. He's been bleeding out ever since. And you can hear one of the SWAT officers in the background saying, he's gonna pass out on us. Things don't look great for George Smith right now. He may not make it out of this mountain alive. Yet, Detective Dvorak keeps recording. Did you get in a shootout with the cops in a bank in Norco? How many of you were there? Five. What were their names? Chris, Bill, Manny, George, and Russ. George Smith's voice starts to fade. Detective Dvorak shuts off the recorder. This mountainside confession is how it all ends. But where and how did this manhunt begin? This is the story of the Norco bank robbery, one of the most violent bank heists in US history. In fact, this is your warning. If you're disturbed by gun violence, this might not be the episode for you. We're gonna go back to where it all started, a town called Norco, right outside of Los Angeles, California. And you're gonna hear from some of the people who were there that day at the Security Pacific Bank. This wasn't your typical bank robbery. George Smith and his gang of robbers were armed to the teeth with military-grade weapons. The police never really stood a chance. 
I mean, it was a downright war zone. Why would George Smith go to such extremes just to rob a bank? We are going to spend the next two episodes trying to get inside the mind of George Wayne Smith. Who was he? And what motivated him to orchestrate such an insane bank robbery? And how did they finally catch him the following day in the canyons, heading to the Mojave Desert? I'm Javier Leva, and you're listening to Pretend, stories about real people pretending to be someone else. tell you about a service that I just started using. It's called BetterHelp.com. And I have to tell you, I'm super impressed. I mean, it was easy to set up. And in just a few minutes, I was matched with a counselor who specializes in the area that I wanted to talk about. I can't tell you how great it felt to just get my thoughts out in the messaging feature. I was able to organize my thoughts before I spoke to my counselor. And the best part is it's safe and secure. And also it's super convenient. I'm able to get help on my schedule and pace. You can even schedule a chat or a phone conversation with your therapist. So if you're feeling depressed, stressed out, having relationship problems, or any concerns, you should really try this out. This is not a crisis hotline. These are more than 3,000 real U.S. licensed therapists working on your schedule. You should give it a spin. Pretend listeners get 10% off your first month with a discount code PRETEND. Go to betterhelp.com pretend. Who was George Smith? Family and friends would describe George Smith as a very generous, caring person who would do almost anything for you. This is Peter Houlihan, author of the book titled Norco 80, the true story of the most spectacular bank robbery in American history. Peter has read almost every document having to do with the Norco bank robbery, and he's talked to all the surviving officers who's responded to the call that day. Peter was just a kid back in 1980 when this all took place. But trust me, he's gone so deep in this rabbit hole that he can recount minute by minute of what occurred that day. And it's terrifying. The 1980 Norco bank robbery is a story not many people remember, but a story that impacts how police departments are run today. I wanted to learn more about the man who started this chaotic chain of events. So here's what we know about George Wayne Smith. First of all, he was born into a mixed race family. His father was white and his mother was Japanese. When he was young, he was a pretty good student. Not only was he book smart, but he was actually pretty good at sports too. He was the captain of the high school tennis team. He was on the chess club. He was the editor of the school paper. His record was clean. Um, had no criminal background, no criminal history. Uh, all of his teachers said he was just a, just a great kid. He later on was a great father. He was a good husband, loyal. He sounds like a model citizen, right? But then there's also another George Smith, right? That was like in there the whole time. Could you describe that guy? George had 
another side to his psychological makeup. And that was really someone who had grandiose views of himself. He was selfish in many ways. But he was also a monster. And can those two things be true at the same time? The psychological makeup with uh, that was the dark side of George Smith was always kind of brewing inside. And they were not necessarily in conflict with each other. And his disregard and kind of detachment from the impact of his actions on those around him could really be chilling. And, and it's hard to reconcile, right, those two George Smiths. There's no question that, that there was a dual personality with George, but not in a uh, not in the sense of a split personality. But um, there were certainly two different sides, so he was not necessarily pretending to be someone he wasn't. There were just two very different sides to George that he was not even aware of himself. Like most bank robbers, George Smith and his buddies needed cash, and they needed lots of it. But it's not what you think. Their plan wasn't just to get rich, buy a yacht, and run away to some remote tropical island in the Caribbean. Nope. These guys had a totally different motive, and we'll get to that in a bit. But if this robbery was going to go smooth, they first need a plan. So one way to get a lot of cash really quickly is to rob a bank. And whose who's idea was it to rob the bank in Norco? Uh, the original idea came from George Smith. And um, he originally had, and a friend were gonna rob a local Denny's restaurant. But when Chris Harvin heard about that, he said, well, George, if you're gonna rob anything, why don't you rob a bank? And you know, I worked in news for a while and I covered a lot of bank robberies and, and a lot of them are just, you know, they stick up the, the teller and they just grab whatever cash they have at in the front. But these guys wanted to go big. Yeah, the vast majority of bank robberies are what they call one-on-one note passers. That's uh, one robber, one teller with a note that says, you know, give me all your cash, I've got a gun. Far more ominous and dangerous is something the FBI calls the takeover robbery. And that's the variety where a group of individuals enter a bank and it's everybody get down on the floor. This is a robbery. They chose a Friday to rob the bank. I mean, it makes sense. Friday is payday and the bank should have loads of cash on hand. They were hoping to find a few hundred thousand dollars in that vault. So, so they came up with this idea. They're, they're not going to rob a Denny's. They're going to rob a bank. But how do you choose the right bank? The bank that George Smith chose was not necessarily the best bank to choose. Here's the thing about bank robberies. If you're going to rob a bank, they actually happen to be in the perfect spot. At one point, Los Angeles, California was labeled the bank robbery capital of the world. And for decades, a quarter of all bank heists in America took place around L.A. One out of every four bank robberies committed in the United States is committed within the greater Los Angeles area. The reason for that is mostly because of freeway. So if Los Angeles was a hot spot for bank robberies, why did these guys pick the worst possible bank to rob? So George ended up robbing a bank that was dead center in the town of Norco, far away from a freeway. 
And, and the golden rule is you rob a bank close to a freeway on-ramp, you jump on, five minutes later, you jump off the freeway, you're five miles away, probably in a completely different police jurisdiction, anonymously cruising the side streets of some other town. Then why did George Smith pick this bank of all banks? But George chose to rob his own bank. Ah, that was mistake number one. But George Smith wasn't going to rob this bank alone. He needed help. So George Smith recruited his buddy, Chris Harbin. But they're going to need more help than that. For the robbery, George and Chris had recruited three other young men. One was Chris Harbin's younger brother, Russell. And Russell was a bit of a stoner, about 26 years old, 27 years old, still living at his parents' house and not doing a lot with his life. They also recruited the Delgado brothers. Manny Delgado was 21 years old. Manny went on to recruit his 17-year-old kid brother, Billy Delgado, to be the getaway driver. I know that's a lot of names to keep track of, but let me break it down for you. So now, there's a total of five robbers. There's George Smith, the ringleader, the Harbin brothers, and the Delgado brothers. What's the plan? I mean, are they planning on, you know, going in, getting out really quick, and getting to a getaway car, and just getting the heck out of Dodge? I mean, was the plan to, to make it quick? They had a lot of good ideas, if you can put it that way, for robbing a bank. They knew they should never stay in a bank more than two in a minute, two minutes or two and a half minutes. Two and a half minutes, max, inside the bank. They should be in and out. No one should get hurt, right? They checked off the essential bank robbery protocol. Serial numbers filed off their guns? Check. Long green military ponchos to disguise their bodies? Check. Black ski masks to cover their face? Check. Uh, they'd even come up with some fake names to throw around for each other. But here's where they really screwed up. Uh, the real flaw in the plan, again, went back to George's grandiosity. It was an elaborate, elaborate plan. Um, I think George tried to address every contingency, everything that might go wrong. And in the end, he had a plan that was so elaborate that it almost guaranteed that something would go wrong. And a lot of things went wrong. <laughs> so the major elements of the plan were that they were going to steal a van and tie up the owner in the back so the van would not be reported stolen. They would use that van for the robbery. Once they leave the bank with the stolen van, they would drive to their cold cars a mile away from the bank and dump the hostage. But that wasn't enough. They needed a diversion plan. Uh, before going into the bank, they were going to make an incendiary device that they would put under a gas main a mile away as a diversion bomb. Uh, of course, bomb goes off, gas main goes off. Boom. A huge explosion will draw every cop and every first responder in Norco away from the bank. While the cops are responding to the diversion scene a mile away, George and his buddies could be in and out of the bank with very little resistance. But even still, they can't take any chances. Chris Harvin came up with the idea that they ought to be armed to the teeth when they go in there so that if they did encounter police at any point, they could overwhelm them with firepower. So what, what kind of weapons did they get? All five were armed with uh, high-powered semi-automatic rifles, either AR-15s or 308, Heckler & Koch 308s. 
there's not an animal in the world that cannot be taken down with a single shot from a uh, from a 308. And George Smith was the one firing the 308. Uh, a 308 can crack an engine block and it'll go through a car door like it's aluminum foil. It's designed to blow somebody's head clean off. In addition to that, they had uh, made homemade fragmentation grenades in their garage using the instructions out of the Anarchist cookbook. And um, these were made of beer cans uh, with a detonator filled with uh, gunpowder, a gunpowder mix they put together, and uh, which was placed inside in PVC piping and then surrounded by shrapnel. The bank robbers also concocted Molotov cocktails made out of old wine bottles. So uh, they had a wide, wide variety of weapons and also survival gear, gas masks, uh, knives on them. George Smith even bought brought along a samurai sword that he owned. They thought of everything. So the plan was to burst into the bank, don't spend a lot of time in there, clean out the vault, jump back into the van, drive up to the getaway cars, drive out to Las Vegas, and launder the money through the casinos out there. What could possibly go wrong? But how does a guy with no criminal record pull off one of the most violent bank robberies in U.S. history? Well, first, you have to take yourself back to the 1970s. This was an era ruled by lawlessness and self-destruction. It was the age of Hustler magazine, cocaine, and angel dust. And when people were lost, they would seek the spiritual guidance of gurus and cult leaders like Jim Jones. If we can't live in peace, then let's die in peace. All ready to go. If you tell us we have to give our lives now, we're ready. I'm pretty sure all the rest of the brothers are with me. But most importantly, and most relevant to the story, the existential threat of a nuclear holocaust was always right around the corner. You see, if you grew up in the 1970s and 80s, nuclear war was always a possibility. George Smith enrolled in the military right out of high school. He was deployed to Germany as an artilleryman and sent to the Eastern Front of the Iron Curtain. So he was trained in tactical battlefield nuclear weapons, literally lobbing tactical nukes behind enemy lines out of howitzers and other types of rocket launchers. So the idea of nuclear war was not abstract to George Smith. It was a very real threat. So, I mean, it wouldn't be a stretch to believe if you grew up during this time that maybe the end of the world was imminent, right? I mean, it seems like everything was falling apart. Well, certainly nuclear war and the existential threat of nuclear war was a something that probably most people believed that not only could happen, but probably would happen in their lifetime. Um, now, if you were someone who was inclined to be on the lookout for current events and signs of social decay to match up with end times prophecies, as told in the book of Revelations, as George Smith was, yeah, you could really find a lot out there to see uh, in the social decay. When George Smith returned from Germany, he became a born-again Christian. He truly believed that the end of the world was here. The rapture, when the rapture came, the Lord would lift the loyal believers up to the sky to meet God 
and all the others would be left behind to face the uh, horrors of the great catastrophes that would precede the second coming. And George Smith believed that if he wasn't prepared, he was going to be left behind. But there was an urgency to his plan. In his mind, the rapture wasn't a thing that might happen in his lifetime. It was happening, and he needed to act fast. You see, George Smith and his spiritual leader believed that they had decoded a Bible parable that indicated that the second coming would return right before 1981. This is all happening in May of 1980. That means he only has a little bit more than six months to get ready. So it's the day of the bank robbery. What do they do first? They kidnap Gary Hakala and steal his Ford tradesman van. George Smith and his buddies needed a hostage. So they chose one at random. They didn't care who they kidnapped. They just needed a big enough truck to hold the arsenal of weapons for the robbery. Unfortunately for him, they chose a guy named Gary Hakla as their hostage. The poor guy just made a pit stop outside of a shopping mall. Before he could even process what was going on, Gary Hakla was staring down the barrels of three handguns pointing directly at him. Now Gary Hakla is taped up and shoved into a cabinet of his own van. That part of the plan goes okay. They then meet up at a Kmart parking lot and they load uh, all the provisions, all the weapons, all everything else into the back of the van. They secured the hostage and the van. Next, they drive their getaway cars a mile away from the bank. There was one more thing they needed to do. They needed to set off the diversion bomb. At a construction site, they set a box filled with beer bottles, filled with leaded gasoline and a detonation device. They set it underneath a gas main and they light it on fire and they take off. In just a matter of minutes, this bomb underneath the gas main is going to go off and every cop in Norco will be heading to the opposite direction of the bank. George Smith and his robbers parked the van directly across the street from the Security Pacific Bank. They sit and wait, expecting that at any moment, they're going to see the policemen, firemen, and every first responder in Norkel screaming past them towards the diversion bomb. Once the bomb goes off, then they'll hit the bank. The problem is, is a man sitting in a store on the other side of the alley, saw the puff of smoke, ran out there, saw the bottles explode, and flagged down a passerby who jumped out of his truck with a fire extinguisher and put the whole thing out. They waited and waited and waited in their van across the street from the Security Pacific Bank. And they never did see those first responders flying down the main street. You don't have the money or the time to go back to school, but you need that degree in order to advance. Enter the University of Texas at El Paso, or UTEP. UTEP is part of the University of Texas system. Their suite of fully online degree programs known as UTEP Connect are accessible from anywhere and to anyone with a computer and internet connection. They're flexible and convenient for busy people. They're affordable, with one of the lowest tuition rates within the UT system. They're the same as what you would get on campus with the same great content and professors. But don't worry, you're not going in it alone. The people at UTEP, 
believe that student support leads to student success. So each student is assigned a point of contact at every stage of their journey. And UTEP is accepting applications for fall 2019 right now. So go to utepconnect.utep.edu or call UTEP Connect at 1-800-684-UTEP. Don't worry, I'll have the links in the show notes. Now back to the show. You know, because the whole point was to set this diversion bomb off, get all the cops to go a mile away, and they could just get in and out of the bank. But that obviously is not going to happen. So, so what happens now? What do they do? When that doesn't happen, what they should have done is called it a day. But they did have a hostage in the back. So they had already uh, were, were guilty of kidnapping. Things got even more complicated. After they figured out that the diversion plan failed, two Riverside deputies happened to pull into the parking lot across the street. George sees that and he knows it's it's now 3.30 in the afternoon. Uh, it's a busy day at the bank and... and uh, George sees these deputies go away. It's go time. Well, in the back of the van, they don their ski masks, their military camouflage ponchos. They lock and load their guns and uh, George Smith yells, go, go, go. The van begins to move. It crosses the street and it pulls into the parking lot of the Norco branch of the Security Pacific Bank, Billy. The driver stays behind the wheel while the other four guys burst into the bank. And immediately begin begin screaming, everybody get down on the motherfucking floor or we'll blow your head off. I mean, it's Friday afternoon, right? Everybody's trying to cash their paychecks. I mean, people don't remember that in order to get your paycheck, you actually had to go to the bank, right? And like cash it out. Yeah, and certainly you needed to take out a, a lot of cash because you didn't use credit cards for nearly as much as you did back then and there were no uh, ATMs. Okay, let's go back into the bank. Manny Delgado jumps onto the top of the teller counter, aims a shotgun at the tellers and tells them to empty their drawers into a bag that he throws down. You know, we've all seen this. We, we've all seen this movie, right? You know, like the, the bank robbers come in and the teller hits the silent alarm. Um, did that happen in this case? Like, did anyone, you know, call the police immediately? Chris Harvin sees one bank manager attempting to trigger a silent alarm under her desk. He lifts his Heckler & Koch uh, 93, aims it straight in her face and says, if you touch that alarm, I'll blow your fucking head off. One of the tellers wasted no time and triggered a silent alarm. Hopefully the cops can show up and put an end to this. But there was a problem. The alarm system had been wired incorrectly. The silent alarm sent the police to the wrong security Pacific Bank in a different town, five miles away. This is Riverside County Sheriff's Deputy Gary Keeter. Alarm is going to their bank, uh, the security Pacific branch that was in Corona. So we never got that alarm. One of the robbers grabs the branch manager and an employee and start heading towards the bank vault. There are already two employees in the vault, and when they see them coming, they slam shut the great door on the vault, which is really just a, a set of bars, almost like a jail cell. And uh, 
Chris Harvin comes up, puts the gun between the bars, and tells them they better open that vault or there's going to be a lot of dead people in here. The manager doesn't put up a fight. Chris Harvin enters and orders them to start emptying out the vault. But here's the problem. These guys waited so late in the afternoon that there was no money left in the vault. They go into the vault and it's pretty much empty. So how much money are these guys walking away with? Well, one of the most violent bank robberies in history started with one of the world's shittiest takes. There was only $20,000 that they walked out of the bank with that wow. day. That's, that's, but I mean, they can't stop it now. The wheels are in motion, right? Like they gotta, they gotta finish this thing. Well, and they've been spotted, uh, which they don't know yet. This is Riverside County Deputy Sheriff Gary Keeter. I've been uh, a deputy sheriff um, and worked in Norco. For years, Deputy Sheriff Keeter patrolled the city of Norco. He knew the streets inside out. But the day of the bank robbery, Deputy Sheriff Keeter was not on the streets. He was sitting behind a desk manning a dispatch microphone. I had just been retired two weeks before that. They had medically retired me, and the department decided they wanted to keep me working. So they uh, asked me to become a dispatcher. Normally, you would have probably, if you hadn't retired, you would have been one of those guys out there, right? I would have been working in Norco that day. That's a scary thought. Yeah, it's something that really has played in my mind a lot over the years. Deputy Sheriff Gary Keeter said it was just a relatively normal Friday. Nothing unusual was happening. Keep in mind that when the bank tellers hit the silent alarm, the signal went to the wrong bank five miles south of Norco. How did they figure it out? You know, like, that that's what I'm missing from the story. You know, the bank in Corona is getting alerted, but how did you figure it out? We got a call from a, an employee from a store across the street from the bank that saw the... Um, suspects walking into the bank with the guns. The silent alarm failed, but luckily for everyone inside that bank, help was on the way. The witness called the police when she saw four camouflaged men with rifles entering the Security Pacific Bank. As soon as Gary Keeter learned of the robbery, he wasted no time. I immediately hit the alert tone and said 211 in progress, Security Pacific, uh, Forth and Hamler and Glenn Blasky came back over the air and said he's 97. Riverside to Norco units have a 211 in progress at the Security Pacific Bank, Forth and Hamner. A 211 means that there's a bank robbery in progress. A 1097 means that an officer has arrived at the scene. Here's author Peter Hooligan again. Well, here's where they run into just plain old bad luck. The moment the dispatch tone goes out, there was already an officer at the scene who just happened to be driving by the bank. His name was Deputy Glenn Belaski. Billy Delgado, the getaway driver, spotted the police car pulling in and warns the bank robbers inside. Billy uh, radios George that the cops are here, and George looks at Chris and they just absolutely can't believe it. So they scream, let's go, let's go, let's go. And by the time they exit the bank, Glenn Belaski has made the left turn and he is driving directly in front of the bank toward the east entrance to enter into the parking lot. Here's how dispatcher Gary Keeter remembers it. Glenn was right at the corner 
when I put out the call. And he went there, was right, turned the corners, and immediately started getting fired upon because they were coming out of the bank. Deputy Belaski had no idea what he was walking into. Before he could even register what was going on, all four robbers had their guns pointing directly at him. Oh, he was hit immediately within probably 15 seconds of being on, on the scene. So Belaski starts going after these guys, and what happens to him? Uh, he then turns into the actual parking lot of the bank and comes nose to nose with the green van, literally two car lengths away. And by that time, all four bank robbers are standing between the van and the bank, and they open fire on Glenn Belaski. Immediately, his front windshield stars, rounds go through the front windshield. He is blasted with, uh, with uh, safety glass from his windshield that uh, cuts his face, uh, burns his arm, and he realizes that he is under fire. And that's when you hear Glenn Belaski. Being fired upon, Chair 59, copy. Riverside doll units, units at the location are being fired upon. Like he's he's just pulling up, and he has no idea what he's getting himself into. Right? What what Glenn Belaski runs headlong into is something that he could never have imagined. Uh, it is one shotgun and three high powered rifles, absolutely unloading on his vehicle. The Riverside Sheriff's deputies were carrying the same thing they carried when they were policing the Wild West 100 years ago: a six shooter and a Winchester shotgun. Before Belaski can even react, he's been shot again. And then a round comes through his, uh, his dashboard and hits him in the shoulder. Belaski should be dead, but he's not giving up. Deputy Belaski does a truly heroic and uh, almost unbelievable thing. He has the presence of mind under this onslaught of gunfire to lie down across his seat. Belaski reaches up, throws his patrol unit into reverse, slams on the accelerator, and fires the car backwards out the parking lot of the bank onto 4th Street, where it slides sideways in the middle of the road. At that point, Belaski's vehicle is blocking 4th Street, which was the getaway route for the bank robbers. I want to pause here and recognize how subdued everyone is over the dispatch radio. I mean, this is the most horrifying call any of these guys have ever received. Probably the defining call of their entire careers. This scene is pure mayhem. Yet their voices seem focused and unemotional. Here's dispatcher Gary Keeter again. How important is it to be calm? Well... The most important part of that is you have to be calm for the guys in the field. Uh, I couldn't have done the job that I did if I didn't remain calm for the guys in the field. The uh, 
issues that had to be done couldn't be done if we didn't remain calm. Here's Peter Houlihan again. And now, what is happening in that? Have the bank robbers left the parking lot yet? At that point, the four bank robbers pile back into the van, and Billy Delgado starts rolling out of the bank parking lot, out the same exit as Belaski has just gone out of. They're blocked. Billy Delgado, the 17-year-old driver, has no choice but to turn around and head towards the only other exit. They are screwed. The only way out of this is on Habner Avenue, which is the busiest street in all of Norco. What's happening with uh, the the people around the bank? Are there pedestrians walking around? Are, Are people getting caught in the middle of this? The minute the shooting starts, the traffic on Hamner Avenue begins to back up. Uh, this is a very busy, wide boulevard with multiple lanes, and it's a Friday afternoon. So uh, cars are backing up a dozen, two dozen, 50 cars back in all directions. Now are they, Billy, you know, has to turn around. He has to head out of the, in, into the that very, very busy street. What what happens next? George Smith, Chris Harvin, and Russell Harvin in the back of the van start firing at Glenn Belaski through the back window of the van. So Belaski is again taking fire, but he still stands up and and discharges four rounds from his shotgun into the back of the van as it is moving away from him at a distance of 25 to 50 feet. And before they can even exit the bank parking lot, Belaski takes aim and squeezes the trigger of his shotgun. And one of the one of the rounds goes straight through the back window, but a single pellet from his shotgun goes through the back of the driver's seat and enters into the spinal column of Billy Delgado when he is about 25 yards short of Hamner Avenue. So do they lose control of the vehicle? What's going on now? Well, Billy's is a particularly horrible death because where the pellet struck, it immediately paralyzed him from the neck down. So his hands fell off the steering wheel and the, and the van drifted off and uh, pushed up against a chain link fence on the side of the road. Billy is still strapped in and his uh, autonomic mer- nervous system is still working. So his heart is still beating and his lungs are still breathing and his lungs begin to fill with blood. And it takes Billy Delgado 15 minutes to drown in his own blood. In the meantime, the van is stranded. Billy's own brother, Manny, is trying to get him out of the driver's seat so he could take over. He's unable to do that. So the bank robbers begin to pile out of the van with their weapons, bringing duffel bags of ammunition, grenades with them. They grab their weapons, but leave all the money behind. Cash was just scattered across the bottom of the floor of the van. So so they're they're leaving their vehicle, right? They're grabbing their guns, everything they can. Uh, what happens to the hostage? The hostage is, by that time, hostage Gary Hakala has been tied up in the back of his van for almost five hours. They leave Gary Hakala behind and they bail out of the van. The bank robbers are on foot without a way out. George, George Smith begins screaming at them, uh, we need another vehicle, we need another vehicle. So they fan out 
and begun walking among all of the hundreds of cars that are now backed up at the traffic light at Hamner Avenue. And absolute chaos erupts in that in that intersection. People are running for their lives. They're bailing out of their cars. They're grabbing their children and running away. It's absolute bedlam as these three guys are are fanning out and walking among these vehicles, aiming their weapons at people. George Wayne Smith strolls out into the middle of the busy intersection and continues to open fire on Glenn Belaski. At this point, Belaski has already taken a round into his elbow and is bleeding badly. Blood is just squirting everywhere. It looks like a scene out of a Tarantino film. And you may be asking yourself, where the hell are the other cops? Well, they're on their way. This is how Deputy Rolf Parks remembers that day. Now, when did you find out what was happening? Well, it's around 3.30 in the afternoon on May 9th of 1980. I was writing a, a ticket to someone just down the block from Rubido High School. And that's when the alarm sound that's placed by dispatch, when, when there's like a serious or potentially serious call that comes in, and they, put, they hit the alarm button. I hand my uh, the ticket to the guy I was writing. I didn't have him sign it. I didn't even finish it. I just I just threw the stuff back into his car and said he could, he could go. 10 4, we're on the line now. Order 51, three suspects fled. A yellow pickup north by Hammer. They got two hostages. Deputy Ralph Parks races towards the Security Pacific Bank at 4th and Hamner. Back at the scene, Belaski is in really bad shape. He's lost a lot of blood. But Belaski isn't the only one injured. Belaski doesn't think he's hit anybody, but actually Belaski's hit everybody except Manny Delgado. Uh, he put one shotgun pellet under the scalp of Russell Harvin which uh, did not break the scalp itself, so it was embedded underneath his scalp. He grazed the back of uh, Chris Harvin's neck, but he did significant damage to George Wayne Smith with two shotgun pellets. So within a minute and a half or so, the other two deputies covering Norco arrive on scene, and they come in from different angles. George Smith was losing a significant amount of blood. One pellet shot entered his hip, and another shotgun pellet hit him in the groin. Ouch. But Belaski is still alone, and backup couldn't come fast enough. Within a minute and a half or so, the other two deputies covering Norco arrive on scene, and they come in from different angles. One of the officers drags Belaski to his car and drives him to the hospital. The sound of rifles firing continues. The robbers are now taking aim at the only other officer on the scene four armed robbers with military-style weapons against one deputy with a shotgun. While George Smith is firing at their arriving officers, his buddy, Chris Harvin, walks down the long line of cars, sitting in traffic, searching for the perfect getaway car. Chris Harvin sees a truck, a yellow truck. It is uh, um, parked one car back in the line of cars. It is a utility vehicle, so it is a big Ford F-250. It's used as a heavy uh, machinery maintenance truck. It is equipped with big cabinets on the side, um, and uh, it looks like the perfect vehicle to Chris Harvin. He aims the gun at the driver who bails out, and Chris Harvin 
hops behind the wheel of the yellow truck. It is like an armored vehicle, and they have three heavy weapons firing out of it, Manny and Russ and George. I mean, it is almost like a military-grade vehicle at that point. The robbers hop in the back of the truck and drive towards George Smith, who is bleeding badly. So these guys are now trying to get away. They're in the yellow truck. I mean, do you think they have any chance at all to get to their, you know, Uh, getaway cars? They certainly have a chance. They only have about a one minute run up to the cold cars. There is every possibility that they could reach those, uh, get in them, head out on a side street uh, before they get spotted. Remember Deputy Rolf Parks? Well, he was writing a speeding ticket when he got the call. He took off as fast as he could. At this point, have you um, arrived at the scene yet? Are you still... It takes, it takes a while to go down there. For me, it was, I'm listening to all this, and you can imagine everybody's spread out around the uh, the county area. I'm going uh, westbound on Limonite, and I'm going as fast as I can. My foot's on the floor. And it's kind of a, uh, a street that has a lot of dips in it. And it's like I'm hitting these dips probably going 80 miles an hour cars going i'm getting air underneath the cars going airborne it looked like a scene out of the movie bullet meanwhile the bank robbers have left the scene and the pursuit is on the bank robbers are sticking to the plan they'll dump the getaway vehicle and jump into the cold cars then take off chris harvin hits a gas and drives towards the cold cars that they parked a mile north from the bank But behind them, every single unit from multiple agencies is in the surrounding area, and they're closing in. How much time has actually, like, gone by since they entered the bank? Uh, About six and a half minutes. They were two and a half minutes in the bank and just four minutes for the entire firefight to unfold and for them to leave the intersection in the stolen pickup truck. But let me just give you an idea what went down in those four minutes. There was over 500 rounds fired, 200 of them shot at Belaski alone, and they hit his vehicle 46 times, wounding him in five, five different places, once badly in the elbow. Uh, all three of the responding deputies had their vehicles struck multiple times. There were bullets in citizens' cars, in houses, into storefronts. Uh, everything in that intersection was hit with gunfire. Five civilians had been in- injured. There was a, a father who was giving his 15-year-old daughter a driving lesson, and they were hit by bullet fragments. They crashed their car into another car driven by an elderly couple, and both those two were injured as well. We're going to stop the story right here, because this is just the beginning of a very long chase. It's pure pandemonium in Norco, California. And I'm not being hyperbolic. These bank robbers are actually getting away. And the chase will continue to the following day when the SWAT team finds George Smith on the side of the mountain, bleeding and near death. What's your full name? George Smith. Wayne Smith. Do you realize it? You have a bullet in your back. There's a possibility that you may die. You realize that? With that in mind, you want to tell me anything about what happened? Did you get in a shootout with the cops in a bank in Norco? How many of you were there? Five. What were their names? Chris, Bill, Manny, George, and Russ. 
If you can't wait two weeks, the next episode is up right now at pretendradio.org. Just click the donate button. For as little as $3 a month, you could get early access and ad-free shows and exclusive access to bonus episodes. Plus, I'm starting to send out stickers and handwritten notes from yours truly. I'm currently mailing my longtime Patreon supporters limited edition screen-printed pretend shirts. It's pretty sweet. In fact, I'm going to give some away right now. If you leave a review on Apple Podcasts and drop your social handle, I'll pick a winner at random and announce a winner during my next episode. This week's winners are at Jen Brasio, at Greensay, at Borderzip, at Anno Hitch, and at Obzovi. <laughs> I'm sure I butchered all of those. Maybe it's not a good idea to read these on the air. <laughs> Anyways, I'm going to pick people at random. I'm going to hit you up on social media and get the shirts out to you right away. But if you want a chance at winning the shirt, just go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Also, thank you to everyone who stopped by the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago. That was freaking awesome. I'm still exhausted. Okay, guys. I'll talk to you in two weeks. Dumb and busted pop quiz, hotshot. Kay, hit me. A pervy arsonist who has a weird thing for men's shoes. Episode 5, Firestarter. Yes. Twins who box for work and murder for fun. Episode 42, Cray Cray. Yes. Last one. Creepiest creeper who terrorizes a family with handwritten letters. Episode 39, Watch Out. Hell yeah. For true crime stories of insane stupidity and exceptional genius, listen and subscribe to Dumb and Busted on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Creative Babble.